In our last podcast episode, we chatted to Jason Coop, and he presented his framework for what to do when your race plan falls apart. It's called the ADAPT framework, and it will help you think clearly and problem solve when things are going pear-shaped. But it's one thing to think clearly and come up with a plan, and another to have the knowledge required to come up with a plan that's actually going to work. And that's what today's episode is all about. Today, I'm joined by critical care dietitian and ultra runner turned sports dietitian, Erin Kolbach. And together, Erin and I are going to arm you with the knowledge that you need to help problem solve those common nutrition catastrophes on race day. Things like bonking, flavor fatigue, gut issues, and cramping. Combined with Coop's ADAPT framework, it will have you armed with everything you realistically can to help you in that time of need. Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin, I'm an accredited sports dietitian based in Melbourne and have 20 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance, whether they're complete beginners right through to professional and Olympic athletes. On today's episode, I'm speaking to ultra runner and sports dietitian Erin Kolbach about managing those common nutrition issues that can strike you down on race day. Whether you're a runner, a cyclist or a triathlete, these strategies can be used and adapted to your needs. But before we get into that, this episode of Fueling Endurance is brought to you by the Fueling Endurance ebook. This ebook provides comprehensive written articles covering the contents of the first two years of the podcast. At over 260 pages, it's packed with practical tips and suggestions, tables, diagrams, and flowcharts, as well as stories and quotes from expert researchers, nutrition practitioners, coaches and athletes who have been guests on the podcast. Each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles on a topic. It provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete or coach seeking to improve their nutrition game and addresses 49 of the most common challenges or questions they face. Everything from what should I eat before my long training session to why do I cramp during exercise and is low carb right for me. There's also bonus videos to step you through some of the more technical diagrams in the book, which you access via a QR code that's included inside the ebook. The Fueling Endurance ebook is now available from our website, fuelingendurance.com, and also available for Kindle via Amazon. All sales of the book help support the cost of running this podcast, and we really appreciate it. Also, if you want to get practical sports nutrition news, tips, and tricks delivered directly to your inbox every couple of weeks, you can join the Fueling Endurance email newsletter. It's completely free, and you can sign up at fuelingendurance.com. And that's fueling spelt with one L. Now, for the trail runners out there, particularly those who are planning on doing Ultra Trail Australia this year, I'd highly recommend you sign up for the newsletter ASAP because next week we're going to make a very special announcement for those who are entered in Ultra Trail Australia. One listener who's doing UTA this year will be chosen to have free coaching in their nutrition preparation for that event. And we're going to document that in a very special new podcast series. It's a concept we've never done before. I don't know anyone else who's done it as a podcast, but we're actually going to follow someone as they prepare for UTA. Now, don't despair if you're a triathlete or a road runner. We're going to look at events later on in the year that suit you as well. But this will be exclusively available to those who sign up for the newsletter. So make sure you go to fuelingendurance.com and sign up. And finally, if you're a regular listener of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and that's about three quarters of you, 
and you're enjoying the content, we'd really appreciate it if you could take 10 seconds to quickly hit pause on this podcast and tap on the rating stars to provide your feedback in the app. If you'd really like to support us, you can also leave a short written review if you're using Apple Podcasts. It helps us out enormously, and we really appreciate everyone who takes the time to do that. So I must admit, it's a bit weird sitting here by myself recording this intro. It's only happened once when Steph was sick, but as you would have caught up with last episode, Steph's no longer involved in the day-to-day podcasting for Fueling Endurance. She's still obviously involved because she's a co-author on the ebook, but you won't hear her voice on the podcast anymore. But we have a guest today to join me, so I'm not going to be by myself for the entire time. We've got Erin Colbatch as our guest. And Erin is a sports dietitian in Adelaide in South Australia, and she's also an experienced ultra runner herself. In the last few years, she's made the transition from working as a hospital dietitian in oncology and critical care, dealing with patients who are experiencing severe nutrition issues like nausea, vomiting, lack of appetite, unintentional weight loss, things like this, to working as a sports dietitian, particularly focused on ultra endurance athletes. Now, while the issues experienced during a race pale in significance to those who are critically ill in hospital, there are a lot of commonalities in some of the practical issues that need to be overcome. And Erin's experience in this hospital setting, as well as her own experience as an athlete, is really invaluable for this discussion. So today, Erin and I are going to talk through some of the most common nutrition disasters that can occur on race day and arm you with some strategies to help if you find yourself in those situations. Combined with Jason Coop's ADAPT framework that we discussed in the last episode, it may be the game changer that you need to avoid that DNF or that miserable race and turning it into maybe an okay race or potentially even a good race, depending on the day. Now, finally, both Jason Coop and Erin are focused on ultra running, and a lot of the examples that we give are ultra running specific. But this framework that we talked about in the last episode and what we talk about in today's episode can just as well be applied to marathon running, to triathlon, to cycling, to mountain biking, really any kind of endurance or ultra endurance event. Really anywhere where there's a chance of something going wrong, this framework can be helpful. So without further ado, let's get into our discussion with Erin Kolbatch. Erin Kolbatch, welcome to Fueling Endurance. How are you going? I'm good. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, you're a dietitian and you're an ultra runner as well, and you made the transition, I guess, as a dietitian from working in the clinical space, mainly in oncology, into the sports nutrition space a few years ago with your business, Ultra Appetites. So how's the transition been? How have you gone from being an athlete and a clinical dietitian to an athlete and a sports dietitian? Yeah, it's a really good question and it's been a really interesting transition. So I guess to give you a bit of background with my clinical practice, I was uh, working in a hospital setting for a good 10, gosh, even more years than that, and very much, yeah, focused on um, working with adults who were having things like GI surgery, in critical care, oncology, which is cancer care, really, really, really sick people. And in that setting, a lot of it is about, you know, just trying to get people to eat something. (laughs) And also, you know, there are a lot of issues around a compromised gut, people with flavor fatigue you know, a lot of recovery and rehabilitation going on, which I really see crosses over a lot with what we kind of do with sports dietetics as well. Things change really quickly in acute care. So, you know, I loved that day to day, like you're always having to think about how am I going to, you know, approach this next challenge. 
And I think particularly in ultra running and with this topic, Alan, I think that's kind of got some similarities also. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I kind of got to a stage where I was a runner um, and started to step up my game in running and doing more and more longer distances and starting to wonder about what can I do for myself to perform better and to be better. And I was having a few sort of personal problems and I ran into quite a lot of running injuries and yeah, kind of just needed to take a bit of a break and step back from my role. So I took a bit of time off and as part of that, decided to do the sports nutrition course, um, which you were part of teaching me, Ellen, back then. (laughs) I loved it. It was just so good to be amongst group of new dietitians that were learning in sport and having that like intensive time together, uh, learning all these things that I wish I'd known so long ago to help me with my running. And yeah, it really was just from there, I was like, I'm just going to go for this. And I got really lucky. I had one client that worked towards Marathon de Salle, just one of my first athletes. And through some good mentorship and, you know, my own learning, um, she got a really good result at that race. And I'm not sure if everyone out there might know this event, but it's pretty challenging logistically and has physically and mentally the whole lot. You're sort of out there in the Moroccan desert for, is it five, five days all up, I think, maybe 250 days? Seven, I think, yeah. Yep. Yep. Six, six stages, seven days, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's an insane race. Um, you're carrying everything on your back. It's hot, it's, yeah, it's filthy, <laughs> but yeah. A lot of people really aspire to it and the, um, the athlete that I helped with it was 14th female, I think, and she, yeah, she was amazing to work with, super dedicated and that's something that I've really found with athletes is that, you know, they're so motivated and they want to do the work. They want to learn. They want to know everything they can and, yeah, it's all about, you know, performance, whereas I felt in the clinical setting, people are spread, they're really sick and, of course, they want to get better but it's really, really, really hard They've got so many things against them with nausea, vomiting, pain, mentally, you know, not being able to get out of bed, all these sorts of really big challenges. And so I felt a lot of the time we have these great tools that we can try and help them with, but yeah, I guess they just don't have as much capacity as someone like an athlete does to really push themselves. And yeah, I was finding it really nice just to work on the other side of the spectrum and really see people at the very top end of health and see what the human body is capable of. So, yeah, it's been a, a really, really good change. As part of it, I've started doing some research as well in sports dietetics. It kind of grew out of my own personal issues and my injuries that I went, I want to know why do runners get hurt all the time? For, you know, a population that so commonly has this problem, like we don't actually know that much about why it happens. There's a few well-known things like, you know, if you've had an injury before, you're probably going to get an injury again. If you have acute changes in training load or a big jump in mileage, that might be a contributing factor. But there's actually not that many things that we can be like, yep, if you do that, this is going to happen to you. And certainly in nutrition, as much as we kind of talk about injury and nutrition and the links, when you look at running, like it's not actually that well established. And so I got really curious and thought, you know, I want to learn about this and was very lucky that... I was able to approach University of South Australia and met my two fantastic supervisors, Ali and Evangeline, and picked up another one later, Joel Fuller, who's at Macquarie Uni. They gave me the opportunity to do my research and um, I'm still going now. I'm still, what am I now, four or five years down the track in a master's degree. Had a baby in the middle of it, which wasn't planned, so that kind of has slowed everything down. <laughs> but yeah, it's been awesome to just throw myself into research, a topic that I really wanted to do and is really personal to me, and just seeing the uptake 
amongst the group that I'm working with as well that studied participants just saw into it and it's been awesome. Cool. And today, as you're saying, I think that that background in in critical care and and people that are really in a spot of bother bodes really nicely for our topic today because we're talking about when people are in a spot of bother in their race. Now, you know, obviously, we don't want to draw too many parallels with someone who's sort of on death's door versus someone who's you know got a bit of flavor fatigue or having a bit of a vomit on the side of the trail or something like that. That very different situation. But as you said, there is a, a lot of crossover there. And and certainly even us dietitians, you know, have nutrition fails in a race situation when we're the ones doing the exercise as well. I know mine was sort of running out of water during a mountain bike race. It was unusually hot and had to ride for almost an hour with no fluid available, which was just awful. What's been your biggest sports nutrition fail in a race? <laughs> oh my god, so many, Alan, so many. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna share a bit about myself personally in this um, example. So, my biggest fail was at Yarrabilla one year, which is a 56k ultra here in the Adelaide Hills. I was not a sports dietitian at this time. I was a clinical dietitian. I did think that I probably knew a bit about what to eat and drink for running, but I, in hindsight, really didn't. Um, and yeah, I um, went into this race having listened to an elite runner who was sort of, yeah, promoting the event. And he talked about his strategy for the race and his strategy was three gels and two salt capsules per hour. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty doable. Like he's pretty fast. I, I can I can do that and be just as good as him. And so, yeah, I went out and I bought the gels and bought the salt caps. I'd never practiced it in training. That's a lot of gels um, for 56K. It's <laughs> a lot of gels. <laughs> Yeah, it still is. At the time, I was doing some stupid things with body composition goals that I really didn't need to and was not fueling myself properly. And as part of that, I decided I didn't didn't want to carb load because I was concerned about weight gain as part of that, which is a really silly time to be worrying about weight gain because at that point, I really needed to be fueled up for the race. And Yarrabilla can sometimes be hot. Sometimes it can be cold. It's shoulder season. You just don't never know what you're going to get. And this year was a hot year which always throws people off because no one's ready for it. No one's heat adapted. No one, yeah, is really prepared. There's three start groups. There's an ABC group. The A group is the last group to go. And thinking I was, you know, had this secret weapon of three gels and two salt capsules an hour behind me, I decided to start in the A group. So, yeah, look, first hour or two, I was I was ticking along okay with my elite male runner fueling strategy as a recreational distance female runner. And then, yeah, look, it didn't take too long for the wheels to fall off. Northern Summit is one of the checkpoints, which I think is maybe 30K in or so. At this point, I was feeling really bad, very, very nauseated. Ended up spending a fair bit of time in the toilets at the summit, trying to throw up, couldn't, which was just all I wanted to do was get it out. And yeah, I was really tired, pretty much done. Called my husband and said, look, you know, I don't know if I can do this and had a bit of a pep talk and... Decided to keep going. So I had to back everything right off. I couldn't keep going with this ridiculous gels and salt capsule strategy. So I was walking along, A stations being packed up as I moved through because I was in the last starting group, um, which is never a good feeling. And yeah, basically dragged myself to the finish line. Looked, it was uh, not a terrible race result, but it wasn't as good as I'd done in the past. And oh my gosh, I learned so much from that experience. And now I know what I know. 
Like, I think I did all the classic things wrong that recreational runners do when they don't know about nutrition for distance running. So, yeah, I think that was a pretty bad one. <laughs> all right. Well, we can certainly draw on that experience for our discussion today. <laughs> so in the last episode, we spoke with Jason Coop about his ADAPT framework, which is accept, diagnose, analyze, plan, and take action basically what happens, you know, what, what to do or how to respond when things start falling apart like that in a race. So today I want to talk particularly about the, the planning part and give listeners, I guess, some a bit more knowledge to help them know actually what to do in those situations. So it's one thing to understand the pickle that you're in, to kind of calm yourself down and to analyse the situation. But unless you actually have the knowledge on what is the strategy that's going to sort of help you get out of this or at least, you know, make do as as best you can in the situation where well, you can take action, but you don't always know whether it's the right action to take. So that's really going to be kind of the, the focus of today. And we're going to cover off, I guess, some of the, the big nutrition fails that can occur on race day. We've, we've sort of covered off on a couple of these already. So one is sort of that classic bonking, you know, running out of carbohydrate stores. One is flavor fatigue when you just you know, you took, and I don't know if this happened to you or all the gut issues kind of overrode it anyway, where you're sort of six hours into a race and your plan was three gels an hour and then you just pull the gels out of your pocket and you want to cry because that's all you've got and you just want a packet of chips or something. So flavor fatigue is a big one. Gut issues, obviously, you know, you've just described that very common, particularly the, the longer the event goes, the hotter the weather as well. And there's obviously several different flavors to that. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And then cramping is one of the other big ones, which, you know, I guess you could argue how much of it is actually a nutrition issue or not, but we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit as well. So for each one of these, we'll, I guess, talk about the things that you can do to try and prevent this from happening in the first place, but then also what to do when you're in the situation where something has gone wrong. So we'll start off with that kind of bonking or hunger flooding kind of situation, depending on what sport you're from, you probably have different language for this. But it's basically that state where you feel like the lights are going out. People have different descriptions, sort of lightheadedness, tunnel vision, just lack of power or, you know, just complete and utter fatigue, something like that. So I guess the the first part of that is, you know, how do we get ourselves out of that? Do you want to sort of talk through, I guess, if, if someone is in that situation where they feel the lights are starting to go out, what do you do when you start to get into that state or you you kind of feel it coming on? Oh, look, I mean, it's essentially blood sugar level is dropping. So your brain is not going to function properly because it's so glucose dependent, which is the sugar that it needs to use to fuel itself. So it's really about, you know, how can I get some fuel into myself as quickly as possible? Um, looking for something, you know, very, very rapidly absorbed. If you can get down a gel or some lollies or jelly bean or some sports drink and perhaps, you know, just sit down and stop for a minute or slow down your pace so your body's got a bit of time to catch up. If you've kind of got in a reasonable amount, you should find that within about you know, 15 minutes or so, you probably will start to pick up. But it's really important that you don't just then just move on and stop. Don't continue fueling. You need to get back on the horse and keep that fueling going. Otherwise, you're going to get back into that horrible situation again. Mm. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think you know, on the prevention side, I guess one of the biggest things that I see you know, as much as it can be, you know, lack of carbs, you know, you didn't eat enough carbs the day before, you're not having enough carbs during the event itself. Yeah, obviously that can be a cause of it. But it's all—it's obviously about how much carbohydrates available to the body to 
have that blood glucose level, but it's also about how much is being used. And that's, I guess, where the pacing side of side of it comes in and, and is really important in this, in terms of the prevention, but as you just said, in terms of when you're in that situation as well. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. One of the other things that I think can be at least a very short-term strategy, and we see this working with athletes with diabetes actually, is that blood sugar is a response not just to the amount of carbohydrate or glucose in the muscle, but it also responds to stress hormones as well. And so what you can do is if you suddenly get a little adrenaline surge, you'll actually get a little spike in, in blood sugar. And so for people with diabetes that are risking going low because of taking insulin as a medication as opposed to their, their pancreas just naturally producing insulin, sometimes if they're starting to go low, they can actually find just doing a quick little sprint will just bring it back up a little bit and, and just get them out of trouble, not not in the long term, but temporarily. I haven't actually tried that with an athlete now, I think of it, that doesn't have diabetes. Have you ever come across that or athletes that have, that have done that? No, I haven't, Alan, no. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. But yeah, it might be worth having having a think about. But yeah, I think that the pacing is an important one, but it also speaks to the fact that, you know, blood sugar does tend to be a little bit elevated naturally during exercise. We see this in the lab. If you get someone in and just run, fine, their, their blood sugar will go up above kind of the resting level. So it, it's a tricky one because if you stop completely, it actually might actually lower a tiny bit. But the sustainability of the pacing is a really important one here. So as you said, you know, you really have to back off the pace and try and get those carbs in. If you're out on a trail or a road or something like that, and you feel this happening and you've got no carbs available, have you been in that situation or had someone who has? <laughs> Not in a race, thankfully. You know, in races, I've always had the opportunity to get to an A station in a reasonable time or, you know, phone a friend and get them to pick something up from um, the supermarket or petrol station for me. It's really only been in training where I've had that situation happen to me. And honestly, it's it's just been a long walk home. If you haven't been able to access something, I don't think there's any real solution if you don't have the carbohydrate there because that's exactly what your body needs to get out of that situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess in a race situation, maybe you can beg, borrow and steal one from other competitors. If someone's coming past and they see you're in trouble, oh, you're all right, you can always ask. Have you got a spare yeah. gel that I could borrow? Or well, not borrow, you're not going to give it back. The other thing that I always do with a lot of athletes that I work with is I always, like I plan out what they're going to have in terms of their carbs during an event. But then I always have like one or two contingency gels, I call them, that are just a couple of extra gels that aren't part of the plan. They're just sitting in a back pocket or in their pack somewhere or, you know, depending on which sport you're doing and what, you know how you're going to carry stuff. But always just one or two in reserve that aren't part of your actual nutrition plan as sort of, you know, get out of jail cards, essentially. And that can be helpful sometimes as well. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to flavor fatigue now. Do you want to describe this one, Erin? I think people sort of inherently know a little bit of what flavor fatigue means, and we kind of you know, alluded to it earlier. But yeah, do you want to give us a bit of a description? Is this something that's happened to you? I don't know if there's a formal definition for flavor fatigue, Alan, is no, there? No, I don't think so. No. Yeah. no. Have you experienced it though? No, personally, I'm actually pretty lucky. Like, I love sweet stuff and that's mm -hmm. a lot of what, you know, right nutrition is. So 
I'm pretty lucky there, but I know it's really problematic for a lot of people. And perhaps it's just that I haven't run long enough to find out. I've never done more than 100Ks. And so maybe if I did a miler, it might be a different story. But in terms of, you know, what it actually is, my take on it is it's just that point you get to in a race where you just cannot face another sip or bite of that same flavor. No matter how much someone is encouraging you to eat it or drink it, like you actually just can't do it. And drawing on my experience from my hospital days is like those you know, oncology patients that just say to me, do not bring any more sustenance to me. I cannot stand it turning up on my meal tray. Just, just no, no more. <laughs> so yeah, um, look for, yeah, my athletes, yeah, super, super duper common. I think one of the most important things to recognize is like, if it's happened, you just can't keep doing the same thing. It's not going to work. Some people will be really stubborn and just try and push through and it will generally result in them underfueling because they're not going to get enough of it. So I think a bit like what you've said, Alan, with your, you know, backup plans, I always sort of call mine an emergency kit in the backpack with various supplies to help them in a tricky situation. You know, know what options you've got. So you've got your backup, yeah, kit in your backpack. You've got A stations, you've got other runners, you've got drop bags, you've got, you know, your support crew. Always have a few different options kind of thrown in there of um, different flavors, different textures, you know, things that you know you can tolerate. Don't go and try something completely new because we all know that's a, a big risk of race day fail. But you also need to understand what nutrition they provide. And sometimes that's a bit of an issue that people don't recognize that. I think one of the ones that I find always people seem to be surprised by is how much carbohydrate is one in one of those little chews. Like, mm. so people will say, oh, I had two chews on my long run today for two hours. It's like, that's not, it's really not much. <laughs> well, I guess when a chew weighs, what, 10 grams, by definition, it can't have more than 10 grams of anything in it. Exactly right. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you need to know the nutrition in the, the options you've got. I've tried a few things with athletes, dropping the dilution of the sports drink um, for a little while and, and or maybe taking a break from it and going to food for a little while and just water and interestingly, this is something that we kind of would have done in the hospital with tube feeding. When people are struggling, we might, you know, go to a, yeah, a lower dilution feed or we might reduce the rate a little bit where we're just having a little bit less per hour than what we're having before. Having different flavors of sports drinks can be really helpful. And so, you know, things like some products will come in those individual sachets where you can have lots of different flavors, which is really practical. It's, it does get expensive as opposed to, you know, having one big bag of one flavor, but can be a lifesaver if you're really struggling to drink any more of the lemon flavor and you just need to switch it up yeah and phoning a friend like I don't know how many times people I know have done that and I've done that I remember icy poles in Heisen 105 one year on a hot day and I wasn't really experiencing flavor fatigue but I was hot and bothered and it was just a really nice difference in flavor when I finally got it it was really refreshing and yeah really really helped me I think yeah yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, there's definitely, I mean, a lot of things on the food side of things, but a lot of them, I guess you'd have to sort of plan for in advance, you know, sort of on the preventative side of things in terms of having them available to you. Yeah, I think one of the other things, you know, you're saying there about switching up the sports drink flavors, if that's an issue or possibly diluting it, totally agree with that one, because sometimes it's the intensity of the flavor as much as anything that, that really gets to you. And I guess the key thing there is even if you have to switch to plain water, and go without fuel for a period of time until you get to the next checkpoint or aid station or access to crew or whoever it is that can kind of change things up for you. You don't want to end up in a hydration problem as well as a fueling problem. So even if you can't 
get the fuel in because there is literally no options that are going to do it for you, make sure you're still drinking water. Even if it's plain water, it'll, you know, at least then you're not dealing with two problems rather than one. But yeah, definitely. And we talked with, with Coop last week about the fact that, you know, sometimes it might even be you've got electrolyte capsules with you. And now normally you don't taste the electrolyte capsules, but you can physically open them up and then get the salt out of them or something like that. And that might be something that you just put a bit of that on your tongue along with the the food that you're eating. And all of a sudden you can make something taste saltier or, or less sweet. So there, there might be potential options there to sort of get you through at least to the next checkpoint. Obviously, when you do get to that next checkpoint, even if you don't have a drop bag that has any kind of savory options in it or something like that, There'll be other things at the aid station, hopefully, that are savoury and, and hopefully you've sort of experimented around beforehand to, to know how you're going to tolerate those kind of things and, and yeah, then make use of those even if they weren't on your original plan. You know, Coop mentioned with, with Katie Scheid at UTMB last in the last episode that, you know, she was starting to, he could see on the TV feed that she was starting to go for like cheese and bread and ham and things like this at the aid stations which was completely not what was on her plan but it was what she needed at that that point in time so yeah sometimes you've got to kind of scrounge around to find what what you can the marathon de saab you know you're mentioning that race before i think that's a classic example because it is over several days it's in the desert you can't really escape the heat for the entire time apart from overnight where it presumably gets quite cold in the in the desert overnight but, you know, you, you see those guys literally bartering food in the, the tents where they stay overnight. So this isn't actually during the running. It's, it's the post-run stage where, you know, people brought all gels and lollies and sports drinks and things like that. By day two of day three, they're just completely over it. And then they're, they're hunting around for the person who brought the salami sticks and the potato crisps and things like that and trying to trade with them to get some of that savory stuff. And... Yeah, generally that the flavor fatigue is the the sweet side of things is where it's really gone wrong. I've never had someone be the opposite where it's like, oh, I'm just sick of savory food. I just want something sweet. Never come across that. I don't know if you have. No, I don't think so. No, no. So it generally goes the other way. So I guess the first thing is to know that, to expect it. And I think no matter how many times I tell people to expect it, it always hits them harder or more unexpectedly than they sort of anticipated, I find. You know, it sort of comes out of the blue a bit and people are like, oh, you told me that was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to be this bad until it actually was. And then it becomes a, a major issue after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. More. I'm curious. I get some of my athletes to play around a bit with menthol, more as a heat strategy. But I've had, just anecdotally, quite a lot of them are saying, like, it's really great for managing the flavour issues where that getting their mouth kind of cleansed a bit and feeling like they just had a reset. And similarly, I've had people talking about brushing their teeth at an aid station and, you know, just getting that fairy revolting stickiness out of their mouth and then they're kind of good to go again. So, yeah, I mean, that's just anecdotal. It's not anything research-based, but, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's the strategy as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, that variety of flavours, it doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of sweet-savoury divide. As you said, going for something minty can be really helpful at times, I find, as well. Or something quite different like gingery as well is another one. Now, that could be because of nausea. We'll, we'll come to gut issues in a minute. But it can also just be a nice 
different kind of flavor as well, I find. So yeah. it might be using, you know, like ginger beer cordial or something or crystallized ginger or something like that. For some people, it might be something like licorice. Like it could be just something that's completely left a field. It could be switching from sports drink to Coke mid-race. You know, you know the number of triathletes who do that halfway through the run and they're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Okay. So, yeah, any of those things that kind of really switch up the flavor can be can be really helpful during a race, even if it's not necessarily sweet to savory. The other thing I was going to mention here, and we talked about this, I can't even remember off the top of my head what episode number it was, but we were talking about multi-day races with James Moran, who was working at that time with Ineos Grenadiers, the pro cycling team, and he's now with you know, X. And he was talking about the fact that during the the Grand Tours, you know, the Tour de France, the Giro, etc., those guys, it wasn't so much flavour fatigue in terms of sweet and savoury, it was actually texture fatigue. So... We mentioned just before Christmas of 2023 with, with Nikki Strobel, who's a chef who's worked in pro cycling, the fact that you know, as they're going for higher and higher carb intakes on the bike in pro cycling, they're having to go for more and more you know, actual dedicated sports nutrition products and less real food on the bike just because it's not tolerated to get that amount in when you're trying to get in your 100 grams an hour plus of, of carbohydrate. And, and James was mentioning the fact that this is now becoming a problem because they just get sick of things that have no crunch or chewing. It's like just all kind of that sloppy, non-textured food, I suppose, on the bike, and they get sick of that as well. And so one of the other things I think is sometimes underrated is just mixing up the textures of food also going for something maybe crunchy where you haven't before or vice versa can can also be helpful mm. one thing i was going to ask you in terms of the, coming back to the sweet and savory side of things and it sounds like you you're a bit of a sweet too so it may not be relevant to you personally but for the athletes that you work with do you tend to start with all sweet and then transition to all savory or do you tend to blend the two together so it's kind of a mixture of the two throughout a race when you do a plan? Or do you tend to start actually with savoury and then go sweet later on, knowing that some of the sweet foods are probably easier to get down in terms of their gels and drinks as opposed to things that you've actually got to kind of chew and swallow a bit more? For me personally, as I mentioned, I'm quite happy with sweet things. I love them. So I do a bit of mix and match all the way through the race. I will always have a sports drink on the go that I'm kind of working my way through each hour. And then I'll have sweet and savoury foods to complement it along the way. So um, I definitely do have some variety built in there. But I find that, you know, with the distances I've done, I've always been able to tolerate a good mix the whole way along. With my clients or athletes, I really try and treat it as individually as I can. So, look, I do have athletes similar to me that say, oh, sweet stuff. Like, I never have this normally. I'm so stoked to be able to have this all day while it run. And others just like, I hate sweet things, don't go there, like I just don't want it. So I think it is very individual, but I do agree with you that in over the, in the whole, I feel most people do start to crave more savoury things as the race goes longer. My strategy for managing that is, I guess it comes back to, you know, the flavour fatigue earlier part of our conversation, that it's about having that variety there. So in my plans, I do you know, give sort of some specifics about what to have during each leg, but I always build in options to sort of swap things in and out because I know what it's like when you're out there. Like you can have this great plan that I'm going to have this chew there and that gel there and that sandwich there. And, you know, it looks great on paper, but then when it comes to reality, you kind of get to 10 hours into a run and you're just like, nah, this isn't suiting me now. Like I need to, I need to change. So yeah, my way of managing is just to have those options there. 
I do think, however, and you might disagree with me, Alan, about this, I think there's a bit of a degree of suck it up in sports nutrition in these events. You know, you can't have everything you want. It's not really a degustation as much as some people would like it to be. It needs to give you the right nutrients and obviously that's predominantly carbohydrate and it needs to be practical. So, you know, if you love, I don't know, let's say a spaghetti bolognese, you know, okay, some races might provide that, but, you know, in most races, you're not going to be able to just eat that the whole way. So you kind of have to just accept and particularly for the really long stuff where you've got multi-day events and carrying your own things like you know, your food is just packets of powder and dehydrated food, really. And, you know, no one eats that by choice, really. But in those situations, like, that's what works. You just, you've got so many logistical challenges. So you need to train yourself to tolerate it and find the best mix you can within that limitation. Yep. Yep. Definitely agree with that. And the final one that I think we mentioned briefly last week, and I I find this mainly for the longer events where they might be going overnight as well, and often that change from day to night, kind of a bit of a change of mindset psychologically as well, even things like pizza. Like people don't necessarily think about that as a good one, good option. But yeah, as I said last week, then Jason English, I think, won seven 24-hour mountain bike world championships in a row eating predominantly pizza. So there you go. So, yeah, and it's it's very individual, as you said. You know, you've got to find what works for you, and a lot of this is going to be prevention rather than cure. But I guess if you are in a pickle, hopefully some of these things that we've mentioned might help you get out of that or at least be able to manage that. But I guess like any of these things, if you can try and prevent this issue from happening in the first place, you're going to be in a much better situation. All right, well, let's move on to probably the biggest challenge of all in kind of endurance and ultra endurance events and that is gut issues and i say big because they're complex we you know we've spent a lot of episodes of this podcast talking about gut issues over the years with with steph and you know figuring out what's caused the problem is often difficult as well because it's not an eat one-to-one relationship you don't go nausea oh well this is the cause and oh i need to go to the bathroom and open my bowels well that's the cause or you know, I've got really bad pain or bloating or that's the core. Like it's not that easy one-to-one relationship, which means knowing how to respond isn't always that obvious as well. But there probably is some universal things that apply to most gut symptoms in terms of dealing with them in the moment when you're actually experiencing them. And I think the first one that, that Coop mentioned last week is really important is firstly slowing down because the intensity of the exercise is going to increase that stress response and and probably make things worse. And if it's a hot day, you know, trying to do things that are going to lower your body temperature as well. So these aren't things necessarily nutrition related, but they're really important to help managing those situations. So some people say, oh, it's the brand of gels. I just need to switch that up or change this type of food or get rid of all the carbs in my drinks and just drink plain water. And you know, some of those things might help, but simply slowing down and trying to lower your body temperature are going to be two of the biggest things that you can do, absolutely. One of the ones that I think is really important, we touched on it before with flavor fatigue, is don't turn a fueling issue into a fueling and a hydration issue if it's not already. So keep hydrating as much as you possibly can. Even if you can't get in any carbohydrate, if you can still get in water, then that's going to be useful. Now, there's obviously situations where people might be overhydrated and you know, developing hyponatremia, different story. But if you're someone who's really struggling to keep things down, it's a really hot day. You know, even if you just have sips of plain water, it's better than nothing. So you know, do the best you can there. 
On the carbohydrate side of things, and we were talking off air about this, Aaron, you know, backing off your carbohydrate intake may be important in a lot of cases, but you don't want to eliminate it completely unless you absolutely have to. One, because it's going to keep you fueling and then not end up with a bonking issue on top of a gut issue. Secondly, because having some carbohydrate in the small intestine is protective of the lining of the small intestine by keeping some blood flow there. So that's going to you know, potentially prevent a bad situation becoming worse. But you mentioned something offline. Do you want to talk about that, Erin, in terms of other ways to actually at least, even if you can't keep down the carbohydrate, at least try and get some effect of it? Yeah, look, I think sports nutrition, there's, you know, it's a very new area and there's always new interesting research coming out. And sometimes things that might be researched in one area and we have a bit of evidence for, you know, perhaps there's ways we can bend the rules and maybe use them in other situations as well. And one particular strategy that I discuss with my runners is the option of carbohydrate mouth rinsing. And I think with the episode you did with Jason last week, he talked about something that's kind of similar in that you're kind of holding some carbohydrate in your mouth and absorbing some carbohydrate through receptors that kind of are in your mouth cavity that communicate with areas of the brain that are associated with reward and pleasure and have been shown in shorter duration, higher intensity exercise to actually improve performance in the absence of actually consuming the carbohydrate. Now, those shorter studies have been done predominantly in fasted state where people have not got a lot of carbohydrate on board, but I guess you could kind of argue that in ultra-endurance, perhaps in some situations, you might be getting to a faster state as well because you've ran through so much of your glycogen. So look, I think if you're feeling that terrible and you just cannot get anything down, perhaps this strategy of carbohydrate mouth rinsing isn't a silly idea that at least, you know, it's better than nothing. It may give you some, you know, brain impacts that's going to support performance. You're not going to get away with it for long because obviously, you know, the carbohydrate isn't going in. But when I talk to my clients about carbohydrate mouth rinsing, I share with them the protocols that are used in the studies that have looked at it in the shorter duration events um, because there is quite a specific way that you would do it. And I think if we're going to use these strategies, we, you know, as best as possible should try and use the evidence we've got rather than just completely making it up. So I think it's, education is really key. And look, I haven't actually had anyone use it in a race that's got to that point where it's got that bad. I'm not sure about yourself, Alan, if you've ever experienced that with any of your athletes. No, well, not that, that they're fed back to me anyway. They might have, yeah. 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 So in, in terms of that protocol, and it's been a few years since I've looked at that kind of research, but from memory it's having obviously a, a liquid, a drink that contains carbs, having a decent amount of it in your mouth, swirling it around as much as possible for at least about 10 seconds and then kind of spinning it out after that. Yeah, if you can't correct. swallow it. Yeah. 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 Around every six to eight minutes that you'd be doing that process, maybe 30 mils or so you need to get, and you're looking at least a six to 8% carb solution, which is yep. most, most drinks will well and surely be that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then the other one that Coop mentioned last week, which I think is potentially useful as well, is just having that, that chew or something that you can just put in the inside of your mouth that kind of dissolves. So you're going to, Obviously, you're just going to swallow that with your saliva. So you are going to get some carbohydrate into the stomach, not massive amounts, but some is better than nothing without additional volume in terms of chunky food that's going to then go down into the stomach and add to the volume that's there. And then also, you know, you don't have to worry about the fluid volume that comes along with that if you're trying to wash a gel down with water or have a drink itself. So that might be an, it might be one. Or even if you've got small things like, you know, jelly beans or snakes or you know little 
anything that's all all you choose just taking tiny little nibbles on them you'll want every you know five minutes or something rather than trying to take a handful every half hour like you might ideally do and then let the stomach kind of be the funnel that kind of drip feeds that into the gut and then into the blood actually you know be the make the mouth the funnel and and put in a tiny bit if you can keep that down go for another 10 minutes and then a tiny bit more and then a tiny bit more might just get you through that period anything else that you can think of there in terms of sort of generic strategies when someone's experiencing those kind of gut issues you sort of alluded before like trying to understand what's happened and part of that for me is that I educate my clients particularly around issues with dehydration and overhydration and understanding what are the symptoms of both of those to try and understand if maybe it is a hydration issue and then they can know that okay I need to pick up my fluid intake or oh I probably have really overdone it I might need to go and see someone for some help in the medical area so you know, it really comes back to Jason's ADAPT protocol, like trying to understand what's caused it and then you can correct it. But it's not always easy, as you say, with gut issues. It can be quite complicated. I think managing stress as well. I've certainly had athletes that get really anxious and I have had one that I've ended up referring on for some gut hypnotherapy to help her with managing her gut symptoms during exercise, which she reported she found some benefit from. I thought another interesting topic, and I don't think you've talked about this in any of your podcasts before, Alan, and it's maybe perhaps not our area because we're not medical people, but, you know, the use of medications. People talk to me about, you know, taking gastrostop or anti-nausea medications or anti-reflux medications while they're running. And as far as I'm aware, there's not a lot of clinical evidence about how effective they are in ultra-endurance. So, yeah, I was very interested in your opinion on this topic, actually, Alan. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I've I've certainly heard of a lot of athletes go down that path. Medications like on Danzatron, for example, which is is very powerful anti-nausea drug that's used in cancer, very expensive drug, and you obviously have to get a, a doctor willing to prescribe it as well. But yeah, there have been athletes that are, that I've known that have used on Danzatron, some to very good effect, some to only a small effect as well. So it it varies a little bit depending on the person. But yeah, things like that can potentially be helpful and I think again as Coop mentioned the other week you know the amount of people that as you said they get into that state of anxiety and then are not thinking clearly you know that you might have the person who who has the nausea who has an ondansetron in their back pocket but they forget that it's there and then they don't take it so it's you know using that adapt model you know to really kind of clear your head and and think clearly about it is is part of the battle as well that sometimes you've got the resources on you to put a plan in place but you forget about them so yeah those sorts of things are trying to clear your head or have some way of reminding yourself that that those things are there and available to you is is also really important. The other one that I've seen a few athletes use, and this is probably more for day-to-day gut issues, but partly during a race as well, is that they tend to get a lot of sort of burping and sort of gassiness, and and they actually use a, a medication that's an over, over-the-counter medication called degas, and some people have had good effect with that as well. So, yeah, there, there's certainly options there, but, again, it's a matter of you know being prepared for those things because... You, know, you get halfway through a race and you haven't experienced that before, you're not prepared for it, it's not going to be there. And I think the biggest thing with gut issues is the prevention side. So if people want to go back and, and they're not sure about that, you can go back and listen to the previous episodes where we've covered this. So episode 7A, which was why do I get gut problems during exercise? Episode 21A, what are FODMAPs and why are they relevant to exercise? Episode 41A, what is gut training and how do I do it? 
or the the Feeling Endurance ebook has a detailed article and a flowchart around all of this with a, a video where Steph kind of talks through it as well. So yeah, there's there's some options out there in terms of getting access to some of that knowledge and, and being prepared for it because certainly of all the all of these things, gut issues is probably the most severe, but it's also the one that uh, probably requires the most sort of groundwork in preparation for a race to kind of minimize the risk of things going wrong. Or if they do go wrong, at least you've got the things that you need to actually resolve the issue when you're in that situation. So I guess the key points from that in terms of the prevention side of things, firstly, will be regular carbs during exercise. You know, don't wait two hours into your race before you start fueling going, oh, I do like carb loading yesterday. No, you need the actual carbs in the gut to keep the blood flow there, as opposed to, you know, strictly speaking, needing the fuel right now. A low FODMAP, low fiber diet the day or two before a race, that can have some effect. It's not a universal solution by any means, but it does have some effect for, for a lot of people. Uh, the gut training, I don't think I can emphasize that one enough in terms of both the food and fluid volume that you can actually tolerate during exercise, but also the grams an hour of carbohydrate in terms of the gut being used to that. Hydration, as you said, Aaron, is a big one. You're understanding your hydration needs if you struggle to tolerate the volume of fluid you actually need, then again, gut training to, to get that tolerance. If you want to hear more about that, episode 53 from February 2023, we talked about sort of determining your fluid needs during exercise, managing body temperature. So that can be everything, as you said, you know, races at the start of a season where it's gone from winter and it's, you get that one off hot day, you're not heat acclimated or acclimatized. That can be really important pouring water on yourself because it's basically free sweat. We talked with Ollie J about that way back in episode, I think it was 4A off the top of my head. Clothing choices can make a big difference in terms of you know, trapping heat in or allowing that sweat to evaporate off. Pacing, we've talked about that, and, and that's probably a universal thing across all of these sort of issues is pacing plays a particular role. For some types of exercise, pre-cooling, you know, your slushies and ice vests and things like that may be important as well. And we've we've talked with Ellie Pashley and Sinead Diver about that in terms of their experience at the Tokyo Olympics with the marathon there that was was particularly hot. You touched on the, the hypnotherapy, so certainly sports psychology, mindfulness, hypnotherapy, these kind of things. It's a a new but I think slowly growing area of research in gut issues. Hopefully we're going to see more of that into the future and, and what role that might play. And then avoiding things that we know might irritate the gut during exercise. The non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs is a big one. Uh, and then I saw a paper published just recently actually that that looked at the use of different medication like drugs prescription or otherwise in, in ultra runners or triathletes. I can't remember. I think it was ultra runners. And the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories was massive, much bigger than I thought. I think it was like 40-something percent off the top of my head. And then considering also avoiding huge doses of caffeine as a stimulant that might upset things as well. So, yeah, there's a, there's a few things there as well. All right, so that's the guts issues side of things. Now, finally, another big one on race day that may or may not be attributable to nutrition necessarily but often people assume that it is, is cramping. So we had Professor Kevin Miller on the podcast back in episode 45A to discuss how do I stop cramping, and that was in September of 2022. That was more around the prevention side of things. But if you're actually stopped out on the side of the road or the trail cramping, we need to know what to do in that situation. You know, we might have done something to try and prevent it, but it's happened anyway. So firstly for you, Erin, are you a cramper yourself? Not usually, but I've had one experience of really severe cramping. 
which was, yeah, a very, very, very unpleasant experience. And I never want that to happen again. Thankfully, it hasn't happened. I can tell you a bit about it if you like. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yes. I think a lot of things that probably were nutrition related may have contributed too much to it. Um, yeah, it was a short trail race. I'd been injured and it was sort of my, one of my first races coming back after yeah, a good amount of time off running. Anxiety, you know, about how am I going to perform and wanting to, you know, be able to push myself. I got a bit carried away with supplements. So um, I loaded up with beetroot juice for the week before and took some the morning of the race. I also had my coffee, which I always do. And then I discovered this little SIS caffeine shot, which was another 150 milligrams of caffeine on top of my coffee. also contained L-citrulline. And yeah, I practiced it with that like maybe once in training, but certainly not with the combination of anxiety plus a coffee behind me and a body that's perhaps not as conditioned as it should be to racing. The race started on a downhill and within five minutes, both of my quads went into massive cramps. So it wasn't just one side, it was bilateral. They were ridiculous. They were rocks. I had to stop. I was hobbling. People around me were running past, looking at me, going, what? That's wrong with you. I'm like, I can't move. I actually can't move. And I couldn't, I could not fix that problem. I had to walk off course. It took me about 20 minutes to get back to the start line. I was, yeah, in all sorts of trouble. Went to first aid. They like stayed with me and tried to massage me for a good 15 minutes and they couldn't get them to settle down. I had huge doms for about two days afterwards, which, you know, I was just like, this is silly. Like I ran for five minutes. Why has this happened to me? I am pretty certain it was, you know, you talk, Alan, about that threshold of, you know, various factors that might contribute to a program. And perhaps my threshold is pretty high that I've never really had too many problems with it before, but with that combination of anxiety and, you know, a heap of caffeine and some other stuff in my body, perhaps that was just what pushed me over my threshold and led to that that problem. It was, yeah, pretty severe. I think the reason why it hasn't happened again is that I've never done that silly regime again of supplements and not being that well-trained and being super anxious. But, um, yeah, also just knowing my limits generally and being really well prepared physically for the event, I think has been what's kept me out of trouble from there. Mm. Yeah. Now, often people describe this, and I don't know if you experienced here because obviously it was a pretty extreme case. Did this come on super quick or did you feel, could you kind of feel it coming on for a little bit and then everything kind of went pear-shaped? I don't, didn't get much warning, to be honest. Like it was, it was very sudden and I think, you know, it, it was also very severe, so maybe that's why it did come on so suddenly. Yeah, but yeah, certainly other people do talk about being on that edge for a while and then suddenly, you know, it grabs them. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and, and Kevin refers to this. The reason we spoke to Kevin Miller is he's sort of written the most comprehensive article with the sort of the current theories around cramping, and, and he describes it in the paper as what he calls a cramp-prone state or, or pre-cramping. So I guess, firstly, if you do experience that, I guess the first thing is to recognise that you're in that state in the first place and that there is a high likelihood that you are going to progress to full-blown cramps if things continue as they are. In some situations like yours, obviously, that's not the case. You don't get much warning and, and you're already in that situation. But I guess if you are in that sort of pre-cramping or cramp-prone state and you have got a little bit of warning, I guess the first things you can do is reduce your pace or power because that's often the final thing that kind of tips you over the edge. And often people find when they back off the pace a little bit, they can kind of just sit below that threshold. It's not comfortable, but they're not, you know, on the ground in agony. 
The other thing that sometimes you can do is altering biomechanics, and probably for you it was the downhill running, all those eccentric contractions on the quads that were really doing it. Certainly for me, I was always prone to cramping on the mountain bike, and and it was generally in races where I get to be carried away early on in the race, often when you're starting with a lot of people and you're trying to kind of clear the pack and you know spending a lot of time standing up on the pedals rather than seated on the bike. Again, you know, very quad dominant way of of pedaling your bike. And so you tend to overwork your quads early on during a race as opposed to kind of spreading the load more evenly with your glutes and your hammies and and that kind of thing. So altering biomechanics can be helpful as well. So if you're going from, you know, standing to seated, if it's cycling, something like that can be helpful to try and take the workload off the, the muscles that are kind of starting to go the earliest. And then if you're actually cramping, I think, you know, obviously stretching is still the the recommended treatment of choice when you are actually in that cramping state. So stretching the affected muscles, it's always well, the biggest problem is if you've got opposing muscles that are cramping because stretching one is shortening the other, which actually makes it worse for the other. So by trying to treat one, you actually make the other worse. That's the worst possible situation to be in, but you, you can definitely be there. I've, I know people that have, that have been there and it's, it's an awful situation. The other one that, that Kevin writes about in his paper, and I think we're going to do a dedicated podcast episode around this, people obviously are very aware of pickle juice. You know, whenever people take it in professional sport on TV, there's always all these comments about it, that kind of thing. But essentially, it's acetic acid or, or vinegar, basically, because, you know, the commercial pickle juice has never actually touched a real pickle. It's called pickle juice, but there's, there's no pickle was ever harmed in the making of that product. So yeah, so the, the acid or the vinegar in there or um, capsation, which is sort of the, the bit that makes chili spicy, those things may help in small volumes. And as I said, I think we might get Kevin back to talk about this because he's actually did a lot of that early sort of pickle juice research and he's very across that area. So I might get him to come in and we'll, we'll have a chat about the the benefit of that but i think you know that is going to be at best a temporary fix and i think that's what anecdotally you see as well is that people say oh yeah it helps for a little bit but it doesn't stop the underlying sort of things that are going wrong that threshold that you mentioned Aaron, before so that's certainly one that you can you can have a look at as well but it's not going to be a, a miracle cure by any means the final one is the old salt story you know people saying i just need more salt saltier drinks electrolyte tablets salt capsules all of those sort of things look to be honest the anecdotal evidence for that plus the research evidence for this is really poor that said there are some people that absolutely swear black and blue that putting salt tablets on their tongue can actually help others find it makes absolutely no difference but some people swear blind that putting salt tablets on their tongue or having something salty in their mouth does help with the cramping. So whether this is a similar effect to the the vinegar or the the acidic environment with the pickle juice or the the hotness of the the capsation, which you have in those sort of hotshot products that come out of the the US, um, possibly it's been not researched at all as far as I'm aware in terms of that being an acute treatment for cramping. Part of the reason is obviously from a research point of view, it's very hard to make people predictably cramp to then test this kind of stuff. But it is potentially worth a trial if you've got nothing else available except for that. I certainly wouldn't sit here and go, oh, there's no evidence, don't don't even bother. You might as well try it in that situation, but understand that it's not a miracle cure that's going to work for everyone all of the time. Anything else that you've sort of seen or heard, Erin, that people have used for cramping that have had effects? 
Not really. It's a really complex issue, as you say. Um, so, no, I haven't really seen anything at all, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably where the, the evidence is at the moment in terms of the stuff that, that Kevin wrote up in his paper and that we spoke about back in that episode 45A. So I'd encourage people to go back and have a look at that. There's also in the ebook a flowchart that kind of pulls all that together and then a video extra for people that buy the ebook that kind of explains that in a bit more detail as well. So certainly encourage people if, if cramping is a big issue for you to, to have a look at those as well. I guess the other key points from a cramping point of view, as you mentioned, Erin, is being conditioned for race day. So this is more on the prevention side of things now. So being used to the intensity and the duration. Obviously, with ultra-endurance sports, it's really hard to simulate the duration. There's not much you can do about that, really. But just do the best you can. Avoid the overuse of small muscle groups. So that's looking at things like your running biomechanics and technique. Uh, your, your pedal technique uh, and things like your bike fit or your shoes as well may have a role to play there. Body temperature regulation may play a role as well. We've talked a little bit about that already. Uh, avoiding either excessively being dehydrated or overhydrated. We know overhydration actually increases the risk of cramping, uh, although people assume it's more the dehydration. Uh, adequate fueling to prevent sort of premature muscle fatigue, avoiding unnecessary medications and supplements. You mentioned that before, Aaron, because they may interact with the nervous system in a way that just makes it a bit more excitable and more prone to, to having cramping. And the anxiety you mentioned before as well is another big one um, in terms of that sort of general stress response in the body and, and one that we don't really understand a lot about, particularly in the cramping context, but hopefully we're going to see more research on that into the future because cramping is an area that is very much under-researched and, and very much... Mm, not well understood. So hopefully over the years we'll we'll get there in terms of our understanding with that. All right. So coming back to our last episode and Jason's adapt framework to finish off with, I guess none of these strategies will work, as we said before, if you're not thinking clearly in the moment. And the very first part of the acronym for adapt is accept. You know, accepting the situation is absolutely crucial to being able to think clearly, to being able to diagnose the problem. Now, diagnosing the problem is pretty obvious if you're cramping or you're vomiting or something like that, but not always that obvious for everyone. Analyzing the situation, you know, what is available to you, what's on you, what can you potentially barter with other competitors, what can you get at aid stations in the surrounding environment if there's a stream, if you run out of water, whatever it is, there's there's potentially options there, but you need to think clearly to, to be able to analyze those. Now, on the planning side, hopefully some of the information from today will be helpful around that, combined with the, the analyze side of things. And then finally, obviously, as Jason said last time, take action. You've actually got to do something if you want something to change. So that's going to be absolutely crucial as well. All right. Well, let's finish up our episode as we always do, Aaron, with our bonus round. So we're going to find out a little bit more about you besides running and your cramping and nutrition fails, as, as interesting yeah. as they have been, and as good a learning tool as they've been, obviously for you, but also potentially for listeners. But our first question is, if you went back to before you started studying dietetics and you had to go down a completely different career path, what do you think you'd be doing now? Yeah, there's a little spot in Adelaide Hills called Cleveland Wildlife Park. I don't know if you've heard of it, Ellen, at all. No. Yeah. Oh, look, it's a beautiful wildlife park. It's all native animals. It's close to the top of Mount Lofty, which is sort of the highest point in the Adelaide Hills, which is very close to where I live. 
And yeah, I just love going there. I go there once a week with my little boy. He's three now. And there's this little um, uh, session we do called Bush Buddies where they learn about different animals each week and they sing songs and play games and do crafts and all kinds of things. And it's a real highlight of my week. It's such a peaceful place. I love that it's, you know, it just feels so natural because it's all animals that are meant to be there. There's lots of bears and kangaroos and potteroos and bandicoots and wallabies and you can feed them and like I'd love to be doing something that would, you know, yeah, be part of that that environment. It's just a beautiful place to visit and I really find nature amazing. Um, I love watching nature documentaries with my little boy. I find the way that animals behave and adapt to their environment really interesting and I know he really loves it too. So, yeah, I think that's mm. what I'd like to do. Awesome. Cool. Now, this might be related to that but possibly not. Anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Yeah, I want to go to Patagonia. Um, it just looks incredible. The scenery is like out of this world. It looks like something from space. Like it's, yeah, the mountain landscapes and the, just the vastness of it and, you know, the remoteness of it just, yeah, they blow my mind from what I see on TV and the internet and various other things. I've done quite a lot of multi-day hiking with my husband before we had our little boy and I really miss that and just love the simplicity of, you know, throwing everything on your back and off you go and, you kind of away from modern life and yeah really really hope to go there one day it's a big trip it's yeah something that i'd like to be able to dedicate a decent amount of time to and certainly not going to be happening anytime soon but hopefully one day i'll get there yep awesome and there's an ultra trail race there as well if you feel a bit more sporty at the time because actually the ultra sports science foundation that funded the the five-hour running study that I did and, and one of Steph's studies as well, they have the conference. And it was actually going to be in Patagonia associated with that race. We were all going to go very excited, but then COVID hit. It was 2020, I think, that it was going to be there. So, yeah, such is life. We missed out, unfortunately. Yeah, bad luck. Yes. Is there a race or an event that you're most looking forward to in 2024, either yourself as an athlete or from a practitioner perspective with maybe some of the athletes that you work with or just as a a fan of of watching it? Hmm. Personally, I haven't done a huge amount of racing recently. I've been battling with a long-term hamstring injury, unfortunately, and also I think since having my little boy, things have slowed down a bit. But Mm. this month is a really huge month in New Zealand. I've got a number of athletes that are going to Tarawera and all Ghost and Southern Lakes Ultra. And I've been working with them for a number of months with their race planning and getting their training, nutrition right, et cetera. And there's some huge stories behind some of the reasons why these people are doing these events. And I'm just super excited to see them all step up. I think I feel a bit bad saying this, but I think New Zealanders probably do a better job with A stations than Aussies do. They just Mm -hmm. get so excited and they've got some beautiful trails. That's another place I'd love to get to a bit more in my future as well. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see what comes of these events in February and, yeah, share the stories with everybody. Yep. Yep. Awesome. All right, and our final question, do you have a favourite piece of advice or motto? Yeah, my favourite piece of advice or motto is something that I've probably really had to learn a lot in the last few years, and it is treat yourself as you would treat a friend. I'm a type A personality. I think a lot of endurance athletes and dietitians are. And there's a real tendency for myself to feel like I'm never enough and I should always be doing better. And particularly as I've, you know, transitioned into a new career and becoming a mum, I've really had to try and work through that issue. I find, you know, with the support that I've had to to get this in a better place, I, you know, I am more comfortable now to not know things or not be the fastest or the best or have the tidiest house or, yeah, you know, 
feel bad about giving myself some time off. And, you know, maybe it is a time of life when a lot of people, I think, you know, start to have these sorts of thoughts. But I think my transition to a new sort of style of dietetics has played a big role in this, along with, you know, a lot of other life events. And I've had a really good support network around me, I think, professionally and personally, that has helped me to make this transition and, and to be a bit kinder to myself than I can be. And, you know, on a personal note with, with running, it's actually a lot more pleasant when you're nice to yourself as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Particularly in this situation we've discussed today where things aren't going to plan. Mm, absolutely. Yep, yep, awesome. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Erin. It's been great to catch up with you and talk through a lot of these things, both from your own personal experience as a runner, but obviously your experience working with athletes and, and as a sports dietitian with, with your knowledge around that. So, yeah, great to catch up. And, uh, yeah, hopefully the, the hamstring improves and you'll be out on the trails clocking up some more miles very soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alan. It's been great. Thank you very much, Erin. Great to have you on the podcast and great to hear your thoughts on some of these issues that are very common for a lot of endurance and ultra-endurance athletes. So let's summarize what we've just heard. We talked about four of the most common nutrition issues that can strike on race day, bonking, flavor fatigue, gut issues, and cramping. Firstly, bonking, really that carbohydrate availability being low, blood sugar going down, having an effect on the brain and on your ability to, to think clearly and produce pace or power. So the key thing here is carbohydrate. But if you're in that situation already, it's going to take a while for that carbs to kick in, even if you consume it straight away. So you might even pop in a couple of gels. It might take 10 or 15 minutes to really feel better. So pacing is going to be key here. So if you start to feel this coming on, don't wait until you're really in a world of trouble. Try and back off the pace immediately and get some carbohydrate in. You may have to stop completely, that's fine. If that happens, it happens, but get the carbohydrate in in one form or another. If you've got no carbs available, then you're just gonna have to crawl your way to the nearest aid station checkpoint, see if you can get a gel off a competitor or something like that, and use that to try and get you back on track. Now, it probably won't get you completely back on track. Usually when you're in that situation, Yes, you'll recover a little bit, but you're never going to get back to, to where you were before. So just do the best you can and try and make the, the best of a bad situation. In terms of flavor fatigue, so that sensation of being sick of sweet, sticky things the whole time, or maybe it's a texture fatigue issue. Again, prevention is going to be the key in terms of having lots of different options available to you. But if you are in that situation and you don't have all of those kind of options, it's going to be a matter of scrounging around for what you can. Again, are there any things on you that might be helpful? For example, the salt capsules that you can open up and stick on your tongue. Is it something you can get from another competitor maybe? Is it coming into an aid station and deviating from your plan? You might have to deviate from the plan here and go for something that is more savory or more crunchy or whatever it is that you feel that you need at that time just to get you through. In terms of gut issues, obviously this is a more complex one. I guess one of the first issues is around pacing trying to reduce the pace to reduce the stress response to reduce the amount of heat that your body's producing during exercise. So backing off the pace and cooling are really important ones that Coop mentioned last week. If you can keep fluid down, keep drinking, even if it's small sips if possible, because you don't want gut issues to turn into gut and dehydration issues at the same time. Even if it's just plain water, it's still going to be better than nothing. 
back off, but don't eliminate the carb intake completely unless you really can't keep anything down at all. So keep at least a little trickle of carbohydrate coming in as best you can. You don't, again, want gut issues to be a gut and bonking issue or a gut and bonking and dehydration issue here. Going to more liquid or compact sources of carbohydrate can be helpful depending on the situation, if it's an overwhelm of volume that, that might be the cause here. But as Aaron mentioned, obviously mouth rinsing or just dissolving some carbohydrate in the wall of your mouth may be all you can manage at this situation. And while it's not perfect scenario and it's not going to completely get you out of trouble, it might just get you through to the next aid station where you can have a bit of recovery. Now, finally, in terms of cramping, Again, pacing is important here, and this is probably universal across all of these things. You know, some of these issues come from people just outpacing themselves relative to their ability. But if you feel the cramps starting to come on, as some people do, you know, backing off the pace might sit you just below that threshold so it doesn't turn into a full-blown cramp. If it does, stretching the affected muscle is still the most effective way of relieving the cramp. It's obviously not nutrition-related, but it works. On the nutrition side of things, there has been talk about acidic things like your pickle juices or vinegars, caps capsation, so that the hot, spicy part from chilies, or things like salt that might have some benefit here as well. Now, the research for these is still pretty sketchy. Anecdotally, some people swear by them. Some people say it has absolutely no effect on their cramping at all. But it's probably worth trying if you're in that situation and you've got nothing else available to you. You may not have chilies available you may have access to some vinegar or pickle juice or something like that if you've got an aid station where that's available or you've got crew that can hand you something like that, then that may be an option. And if you don't have either of those, at least you're probably going to be able to access some salt or something salty around the course or, or the racetrack. So it's certainly not a, a universal solution, but you know, it's, it's certainly worth a try if you're in that scenario. But ultimately, the pacing and the stretching is going to be the most important thing from a cramping point of view. And finally, I'd say here, and we didn't really talk about it in the discussion with Aaron, but avoiding overhydration when it comes to cramping. There is a tendency, I think, for a lot of people when they cramp to panic because it is pretty stressful and then think hydration, hydration, and then end up over drinking during exercise and end up overhydrating, which ironically actually increases your risk of cramping further. So that's not a, a useful strategy either. And you don't want to end up with hyponatremia because you were trying to prevent cramping. So that brings us to the end of this episode and wrapping up this topic of what to do when disaster strikes on race day. Hopefully between Coop's ADAPT framework last week and what we've just discussed today, you'll be able to have a bit of a plan of what to do when things go pear-shaped. As Coop mentioned in the last episode, share that with your crew, have contingencies in your own gear that you're carrying with you, but also with things that might be going into drop bags, having reminders for you can be helpful as well. Any of those things can kind of help bring it together and keep you in the moment, focused on what you're doing and provide you with the solution when it may not always be that obvious or when you've lost your head a little bit and you're kind of forgetting about it. So let's move on to our next episode now episode 73 and this is a little bit of a different one to what we've had in recent episodes what we're looking at is actually a research study that was published just before christmas of 2023 that generated a huge amount of attention in social media land and our topic is does how i eat my protein over the day matter and we're joined by assistant professor jorn trommelin from maastricht university in the netherlands 
And Jorn was one of the authors on this particular study, which really challenges some of our ideas and recommendations about how we should or need to think about eating protein across the day. So really fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed speaking to Jorn about this and we'll really give us some insights into maybe how we think about protein needs across the day as athletes. So just to wrap up, a reminder, if you have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at Fueling Endurance on Instagram, Facebook, or Threads, or Fuel Endurance on X or Twitter. Thank you to those who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate that. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and you've got 30 seconds now or at the end of this episode, we'd really love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. Also, remember that there's now 73 previous questions that we've already answered on the podcast. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. But you might like to go and check out the back catalogue to find if there's something there that might be helpful for you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going all the way back to November 2020. And if you do want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on right now. You can get your hands on the ebook, as I mentioned off the top, at fuelingendurance.com, and that summarizes the episodes from the first two years of the podcast and adds some additional content in there in written format. So that might be something that people want to dig their teeth into. And finally, if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, please let them know because you can point them to the episode and they'll be able to get the answers and you'll be able to get the credit for pointing them there. So that's it for me. feels very weird because normally Steph's doing the sign-off on these podcast episodes, but we will love and leave you, and we'll see you in the next episode.